I serve on the kids team here. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their voice to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pinched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens. It makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right. How's everybody doing? Man. Man, I'm excited about today. I'm kind of sad this is the last installment of the Psalm series. I'm excited about where we're headed uh, this summer. Uh, we always do some pretty uh, creative and cool things in the summertime, but this has been a really good series for me. It's been cathartic, so thank you, um, and I appreciate it. It's super personal. Uh, if you haven't been here for any of the Psalm series, we've really approached it um, from the, the place I think that it was written, where it's God's given us right in the center of Scripture a language for the heart, the soul, and the mind. And I think in, in religious circles and church circles and theological circles, sometimes we divide up the type churches we have. We have churches that are more emotionally driven and, and invoke the emotions, and then you have the ones that are theologically correct. But the reality is, is if, you've, if you divorce emotion and theology, you've made a huge error. Because if you look all across the pages of Scripture, specifically the Psalms, they are emotional. They engage not only the mind, but they engage the soul. They engage the heart. They are about relationships. It's tears. There's a lot of tears in the Psalms. And it's been an amazing series to be able to even do some, some self-evaluation in the way that we engage with God, the way that we engage with Scripture. It's taught us how to pray. We've, we've written our own psalm together, if you, if you were here for that week. It's been super beneficial for, for me, but ultimately the whole purpose in this series, it's the same one that we have for the Come and Listen series when we look at the whole narrative arc of Scripture, that every page whispers his name, him being Jesus. It's always leading 
to the Savior. It's always leading to the cross of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. And I love Psalm 19. I love uh, how it's laid out. C.S. Lewis says, this is the greatest of all the Psalms, which is a pretty bold statement. I mean, obviously, people have their favorite Psalms. Gerald's is 116, which I think is an amazing one as well. But there's something about What's, what's said in this kind of, it almost feels like two Psalms, doesn't it? You know, it's like, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then all of a sudden it's, your word is delicious. And it's like a whole different kind of thing. Like, is there two different things going on here? Um, but really they are put together very beautifully for a reason. And when I think about this idea of a Psalm that's a little more external than where we've been, because we've been kind of internal as we've been approaching the Psalms. We've kind of looked inside at ourselves, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. We've looked at walking through the valley of the shadow of death and our response to that, how we engage with God. Uh, this is more looking up and looking down, isn't it? It's like this is uh, noticing things that I think in our culture and in our day uh, might be missed on a regular basis. But when I read this and when I was digging into it this week, immediately when I was thinking about the awe-inspiring movement in the heart and the soul when it comes to nature, when it comes at staring at the stars, I, I thought of my in-law's farm. I've mentioned it before in, in, some, in some ways in pain because my wife has so many family members. We all kind of converge in the same place and I end up on an air mattress and I have herniated discs. So uh, sometimes my journey to the farm is painful. Uh, but honestly, my overall, my overall view of the farm has always been some of the most amazing things in my life have happened at the farm. Like if you go out and it's legit, like there's, you know, they're not farming for money. Uh, I mean, it's farming, unless you're really good at it, you're not making cash. Uh, but there's cows, chickens, goats, the whole nine yards. You know, as my kids have grown up going there every summer, they, my boys have always done what's called man camp. I think I might have mentioned that. They go there. My father-in-law, you know, Marine Corps pilot, flew helicopters in Vietnam. He's like, you're going to learn how to survive. And it sticks them out there. And, and they do it, man. It's just like they're killing things, eating them. You know, however you feel about that, that's what they do. They, I mean, if anything goes down, zombie apocalypse, my kids, I'm going to be like, teach me your ways because I don't know anything. They know it all. Um, but in my, early in my, there's just so many things that have happened. I mean, I just, I earned my man card out there. I mean, some of you know, you know, I mean, Dave thinks he's manly, he's a fireman, he's awesome. But I tackled a bull and castrated it with a steak knife. So, I mean, that, if that doesn't give you your man card, and you know what? I usually don't brag, but I mean, come on, <laughs> seriously. I mean, that is serious manliness. I got photographs to prove it, but you don't want to see those. Um, but the farm, like, there's just amazing things that you witness. People always think I'm exaggerating and lying because I'm a pastor, and that's what we do. But <laughs> this is so true. Like, this is, not a, this is not a lie. You could go out there. They used to have 12 goats in one pasture. They're like little lawnmowers. If you ever want them to, you know, mow your lawn, just get goats. I mean, they would love that in Ponte Vedra. Um, but if you have goats in your pasture, they keep it kind of nice and clean. At night, you could go out on this pasture, and I kid you not, you would see goats 40 feet in the air in trees. Yes, absolutely. Somebody said, what? Somebody else in here is redneck enough to not admit it, but they know, yeah, man, them goats will get up there. They will. <laughs> they absolutely will. There's like one branch that's like this skinny that was laying on the ground, and they, there's bobcat. There's all kind of stuff that will tote you off and eat you out of the farm. 
and they know it. So at night, they would sleep literally like this. You would see, you would shine a light up there, and all you would see is like glowing eyes looking down at you from up in the tree. And people that didn't believe me, I brought them out to the farm, and sure enough, at night, they'd go out there, we'd go in the thing, and they're like, where are all the goats? I'm like, look up, man. They're in the tree. They are up there in the tree. But the most amazing thing, and the thing that I have experienced every time I go out to the farm in South Georgia, beautiful property, is when it's clear and you look up, what do you see? Stars, man. And I'm talking about overwhelming the soul stars. Like you see the, the, you know, the, the structure of the Milky Way up in the sky. Like you can literally see it. And if you don't look up, you won't, but it's almost impossible because right as you hit the horizon, I mean, it's like, you know, Forrest Gump, I didn't know where the, where the heavens began and the earth ended. I mean, I don't even know, you know, as I, as I see it, you know, the, the sparkles on the water. It's just amazing to see. And it does something to the heart. It does something to the soul. It takes you outside of yourself. It lets you know that there's something bigger and greater than you. And you're small and insignificant in those moments. And the reality is moments like that, I mean, the moments like David's describing in Psalm 19, you can almost feel the joy in that passage, not, not just about nature, but about his engagement with the words of God, the laws of God that lead us to life. There's something that's happening to his heart. And for, for you and I, we can equate that to our moments when we walk out into nature and we look up or go to the edge of the Grand Canyon. There's something that makes you feel small, but it also makes you feel wonderful. And in fact, that's actually, you know, we, God placed this in a way to, to do something to our heart, soul, and mind. And we, we will kind of walk through that. But it, it is physically good for you to experience awe and wonder in creation. It is good for your mind. It is good for your heart. Literally, it's good for your heart. And it's good for you physically. You know, I was reading an article um, by a psychologist. Imagine that, David Fessel. Listen to this. He says, recent evidence um, that, we, that we see, it says, in a 2021 study, Dr. Bai and colleagues at UC Berkeley demonstrated awe's effects for reducing daily stresses. And you're like, yeah, getting out in nature and getting away from your phone, that seems like an obvious thought. But listen, this is self-reported and on physiological levels. In other words, they interviewed people and the people going, man, when I get out in nature, it de-stresses me. Well, yeah, that's great. But they also studied it in the brain. They also studied it, studied it in physiological levels and measures and found this to be true. Their data suggests that experiences of all are, listen to this, more potent than other positive emotions, including amusement and joy. You and I are amusement and joy seekers. I mean, we all are. It's what we do. God created us, actually, to seek those experiences. But, but, but experiences of awe where you feel small, they exceed in terms of their benefit for our mind, our heart, and our soul, amusement and joy, which is what we are always after. But awe is better. A sense of vastness is often a key component of awe, be it in nature or videos of natural wonders. Such experiences take the focus, listen to this, off of the self, easing stress and increasing well-being. Imagine that, not thinking about you and thinking about other things is good for you. Recent physiological studies of awe are especially intriguing. MR, listen to this, an MRI a study by Van Elk indicates that experiences of awe decrease activity in the default mode network, the DMN, the brain circuitry associated with rumination and self-focus. They literally looked at the area of the brain 
that gets lit up when we ruminate. And you know what I mean. When, when we have something in life, like we're thinking about the job interview that's coming up, or we're thinking about that conversation we had with a friend that didn't go well, and we haven't talked to them in three weeks, and we've been, it's been in the brain, or we've thought about something that's going on. Maybe physically we don't look the way that we're, we, we feel like we're supposed to, and it's the thing that we're always thinking about when we go to bed at night. All of those things, the things we just think about all the time, the upcoming job interview, the, the diagnosis that you're, that you're waiting on. All of us have experienced ruminating. Experiences of awe literally begin to reduce the amount of activity in that area. Because why? Because you're not self-focusing. Look at this. Later in the article, it says this. and I, I, I pulled this out because it really struck me in an interesting way. Experiences of awe like a beautiful sunset, quiet self-talk. And, and nobody talks to you more than yourself. I mean, that's just a reality. They quiet self-talk as they calm our nervous system. They literally, what's interesting about this, this is a, a scientific and a psychological article about the physiological well-being of experiencing awe. And it's interesting, John Piper has said this for years about what we see in scripture and what we experience in, in nature that for, for you and me, standing like us, he says, self-forgetfulness in the presence of majesty is the capstone of joy. You get that? Let me repeat that. Self-forgetfulness, like me, no more navel gazing, self-forgetfulness in the presence of majesty is the capstone of joy. There's something about reducing ourselves and understanding that there's something bigger that there's something greater, that there's something that has more magnitude than we have that is absolutely essential in our survival, in the way that we engage in the rest of the world. Imagine that, not being arrogant, not being self-focused, not just thinking about yourself, but thinking about others, not just thinking about you, but opening your eyes and looking outward is actually a good thing. And it's across the pages of scripture. And now it's getting confirmed in science. I love this because I think in many ways, we thought science would come along and begin to disprove religion, disprove specifically Christianity, evangelical Christianity, this idea of Christ following, this idea of believing in the Bible. But unfortunately for the people that want to shut Christianity down and want to shut the Bible down, the Bible's been saying things that the world is just unpacking in science since the beginning of time. In other words, because it's God's word, God has been saying this for a long, long, long time. And the psalmist is reiterating it in God's word. But the tension is, for, for you and for me, in the world that we live in, we live in 2022. So how do we experience awe? I mean, we have a, we have a problem experiencing awe. It's not something that I, I've just thought, oh, you know what, I think we have trouble experiencing awe. No, it's, it has been studied. We struggle in our current culture for many different reasons. There's a stack that you could, you, you could just come up with in your mind from technology, the advancement of technology, the way that we can experience the world through a screen versus experiencing it out in nature, um, the busyness of life, the pace of life. There's so many different things that cause us to not have those experiences of looking up and seeing the beauty and the glory of God. 
You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation's declaring the glories of God. The, the, the sun rising like a bridegroom coming, coming forth and meeting his bride. I mean, this beautiful picture that the psalmist lays out there. And for you and for me, we have this thing called hedonic adaptation, which is we experience something multiple times because we have accessibility to it, and that would be us in the West. We have accessibility to so many things. For us that live at the beach, we understand this. Over and over and over again, we overly experience, we overly experience life. What happens? It becomes ordinary, right? It becomes the thing that we've done all the time. It's the thing that we, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't become as special to us. I always equate it to this. And if you're from Oklahoma, pardon me. But if you're from Oklahoma and you come to the beach, you look different than the people that live here. I mean, for many reasons. You're pasty white and your business socks on the beach going crazy. And we know that you're not from around here. But part of that is your approach, we, for us that live here, and we try to remember the, the, the absolute privilege it is to, to be and have accessibility to one of the greatest wonders of the world, which is the ocean. I mean, there's many ways to appreciate it, but you're not going to appreciate it like somebody that's been landlocked their whole life, and they're just for the first time walking out to see the expanse of the ocean, they are going to react differently. It won't matter what temperature it is or what they're wearing. They're going in the water. And I love it. You've, it's, and it's packed. You always know. Because beach people, they've been around. You know, you don't see pe people that are locals go out to the beach at 2 in the afternoon. Why? It's hot. You're going to get burnt. you get cancer. But you know what? All the tourists are going to be out there. Like, beach people are like 8 o'clock in the morning. They're all walking down the beach. You want to you see people in our community, if you're new here, Get up early and go walk on the beach, go surf early, be out early. By 10, locals are gone. And then what happens? I always, it's, it's like we all have figured it out. It's euphoria time. About five o'clock in the afternoon, all the tourists have left, everybody's gone. We all of a sudden are like, all right, baby, go grab your beach chair. We're going to sit on the, and it's just like glorious. You know, it's like 9,000 degrees in town, and we're like feeling an east breeze. We're like, I wonder what those poor people are doing. And that's the way we feel about it. And we, we find these pockets to enjoy it, but we just don't in the way somebody does that doesn't experience it all the time. And that's such as life. We've been inundated and overwhelmed with certain things where we don't appreciate looking up. And certainly when it comes to the word of God, as he transitions in this passage, we don't do that either. In fact, the statistics show that people were engaged in the things of God back in the 70s and 80s. We could go further back and it would be even more 70s and 80s in a different way than they are now. I mean, church three times a week. That's just, that was what people did. It was one of the ways that people engaged with other people. It was one of the ways of places of interest, the place where you fed your heart, soul, and mind. And now regular attendance has gone from two to three times a week to one to two times a month is considered a regular attender. And guess what that's done to biblical literacy? I could give you a bunch of statistics, but I gotta move on. It's plummeted. The way that people knew the Bible in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s is way different than we do. People that are regular church attenders typically just don't know the Bible the way that they used to back in the good old days, right? But part of that is we're inundated, we are distracted, we have something that's on top of us in a way that has kind of slowly come upon us, but then at a rapid pace, uh, the world has changed. Jason Silva says, we no longer have eyes to see or ears to hear or hearts that feel 
or understand. I mean, he's a pagan philosopher, and he's quoting that right out of Scripture in multiple places, that we miss God on every turn. He's talking about awe and creation, but that's, for me, is, is missing God. So what do we do? How do we, how do we change the narrative for you and for me? Because the most important thing for us is to be engaged in a relationship with God. Not only that, but to be in that position to know and understand who he is in comparison to us. That is a, that is a useful thing. The glory of God is the reason that we exist. It's the reason that creation exists, is to draw us and our attention to the glory of God. And the psalmist says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim, they're literally speaking the work of his hands. Day after day, they, I love this contrast, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Something's happening when you look at the skies. Something's happening when you witness it. And then he says, they pour forth speech, but what does three say? They have no speech. And what he's saying, in, in saying that they have no words or no speech, no sound is heard from them, he says, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. He's saying how powerful it is, the voice of God in creation. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like the bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. I mean, I want to read this the next time I watch the sunrise. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes a circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. You can tell that the psalmist is overwhelmed by who God is. And could you imagine if he understood and knew what we know now? Like he had no idea the expanse of the universe. That if you, you know, he's looking at the sun and watching the sun come out of its chamber like a bridegroom and has all these beautiful descriptions. But if you got on a, you know, a SpaceX rocket, I mean, it would take you seven months to get there. Seven months to get to the sun, 93 million miles. I mean, if you were getting to, to, to be able to, which we can't travel the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, it would take us 100,000 years to tra travel across our, just our galaxy. 100,000 years at how fast? 186,000 miles a second. And there's 100 million galaxies that we know of and we're kind of a small one relatively to what we know in science. 100 million of them. I mean, you can start going backwards and break that down if you want to. Or just go watch a Louis Giglio talk. He'll tell you all about it. But it is unbelievable to think about that the psalmist is overwhelmed. But now, again, we thought science would push us further away. And all of a sudden, we would no longer go, oh, well, I guess God doesn't exist. We don't need God. And now, we're more inclined to believe there has got to be an intelligent creator that set this, this intricate play, this intricate artwork in place. And we are this, this small, insignificant, but beautiful and precious blue ball. As Carl Sagan says, we are, you know, we are a blue dot, a pale blue dot suspended on a sunbeam. I mean, we are just a dust particle when it comes to the, the expanse of all of science. Carl Sagan also says, somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. And my first point today as we, as we read this passage, in this, especially this first half, is that God reveals his glory in creation. God reveals his glory in creation. Somewhere, something incredible is wanting to be known. What is it? 
God. He is opening, he's, he's doing something so gracefully and wonderfully for us that we walk outside and there's certain things that we see. And again, there are things that we, we experience on planet Earth that can beat you down on a daily basis, but it is difficult in moments in life to not think to yourself, there is something bigger, there is something greater than me on planet Earth. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, verse 20. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Like, how are we going to know these things? How are we going to know God's invisible? We can't see him. How are we going to know that he's really powerful? And, and what is nature's like? What is God like? He says, they've been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. He's like, it, it's impossible to walk outside and look up. It's impossible to experience the world that we live in unless it's been dumbed down, unless it's been, unless there's hedonic adaptation that's going on. We've gotten so used to things that we've forgotten how to appreciate them. How do we find our way back home? How do we get there? We've got this passage that say, says creation declares the glory of God. Creation pours forth speech about the nature of God. God reveals his glory in creation. Well, why is that important? Well, one, you gotta know what glory is. I mean, for me, I, when I, growing up, I, I thought glory was just naked. I, that's what I knew because my parents would always hold up a picture and just say, there's you in all your glory. And I thought, that's glory, I guess. But that's not it. Glory is, it's weight. That, it literally translates in the Hebrew as weight. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the weight of God, the importance of God. It's like an all-encompassing weight, not just like poundage, but just sheer force and weight, the most important thing. So as we grow in our understanding of the universe, as we grow in our understanding of what we see when we see the Milky Way spread out and we understand that it's 100,000 traveling light years across and that there's a hundred million of these galaxies, what expands in the mind is the weight of the glory of God. And that's important for us because God is about his glory. That's why you were created. Colossians 1 says, I was created by and for Jesus. And Jesus was the active force in all creation. We were created for his glory. But what I love is this whole thing and this dance that God's glory, everything that he creates, everything that he's in glorifying himself, it is good for me. It's the thing that brings me joy. It's the thing that, that changes my heart. It's fantastic in how it, and how it works and how it operates on planet Earth. And my question to you is the same one that A.W. Tozer asks in, in a couple of his books. He says, is your view of God worthy of who the heavens say he is? Is your view of God worthy of who the heavens say he is? Study the heavens. Understand the magnitude of our, our own sun in comparison to other stars. It's a relatively small one, but yet it's, to us it's massive. Is your view of God, is it proportional is what he's saying to what the heavens are saying? Because the heavens are speaking. They're shouting, they're screaming. Nature, everything that God created, everything that is around us is screaming his name, saying, I want you to understand 
the weight of God and who he is and how massive he is. We have a lightweight view of God, especially growing up in the Southeast, because the gospel, there's been this gospel inoculation for, for many of us that have grown up here. It's church as usual. I go to church, a guy gets up, he gives a talk, we sing some songs, we go out and have some lunch, and that's kind of the routine of church. When's the last time we thought and looked up and just went, I can't believe God is as big as he is, is this? It's, it's taking my breath away to think about who he is in relation to me. I feel small, but yet it feels right and it feels good. It's interesting, a guy named Charles Meisner, who was an astrophysicist who worked with Albert Einstein, was asked after Albert Einstein's death, somebody said, why was Albert Einstein so, he was almost angry about organized religion. Like when people would say, you know, why aren't you religious? And Albert Einstein was like, he would just get frustrated. And Charles Meisner said, the reason is, he would go to church, he would go to any type of religious activity, and he would, he would say that they miss it. When it comes to, you know, who, who if there is a creative power, that, that they don't have the proper respect for the author of the universe. That's Einstein. He would go to church, and he'd say, they got a small view. If this is what they're basing, if, if what they're saying in their you know, their sermon or the, in, in the way that they worship and the things that they do, I'm guessing they have a small improper view of something that could have created this. And as a scientist, it takes my breath away. That was Einstein. So maybe we need a shift in the way that we view God. Maybe something needs to disrupt something in our heart. Is our view of God worthy of the who, who the heavens say he is? You know, John Piper says this. He says, the really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not moments of self-satisfaction, but those of self-forgetfulness. He's saying the most joyful moments are not the ones where we self-satisfy, we seek pleasure and we satisfy ourselves. He says the, the real moments of joy are self-forgetfulness. Why? The same, the same reason that scientists were saying at the beginning of our time here that when we self-forget, when we have moments where we can self-forget, that's where true, that's better than pleasure, it's better than joy-seeking, it's better than the, the things that we can grab hold of in life for whatever reason, experiencing awe and feeling small and knowing that it all doesn't rest on me to get it done feels right, it feels good, it is the thing that brings us joy. And that's why God being in pursuit of God's glory is a good thing. Some people say that's arrogant, that God is all about himself. Well, God is God. I mean, if God wasn't the supreme dude, then it'd be like, well, you shouldn't be bragging because you're not the dude. You look up and go, he's the dude. He is it. He should be. Would you want a bashful God going, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of did it. It's like, you know, <laughs> no. You wouldn't worship that God. You just wouldn't. God, there's no false humility with him. He's, it's the way that he is. I, I love uh, I've, this movie. I've probably seen it a bunch of times, made my kids watch it, and it's old. And, 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 but Contact, anybody seen Contact in here? Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey he's a great Texas boy, I like him. Um, but it, I love the, the essence of it. It was, a, it was based on a book by Carl Sagan. And it, it, it's 
it's pretty incredible what happened. She has this experience where she, they, they don't believe her, but they're trying to, you know, they got alien contact and they're trying to figure out how to get to where the aliens are. They've sent them a message and they build this thing and you should go watch it. It's actually pretty good. But at the end of it, she's before Congress trying to explain that she actually did go somewhere and experience something. But for them, what they saw with their eyes didn't appear as though she went somewhere. And so she's defending it. And she says this. She says, I was given something wonderful, something that changed me forever. A vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant, yet how rare and precious we all are. I love that. Those are together, tiny and insignificant. It needs to be in the framework, but rare and precious. A vision that tells us that we belong to something greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. And I love that that's just the beginning. Like that's, that seems it's the end of the movie and that seems like, wow, I'm glad. She looks like she's on her way to knowing God and that's a cool movie that's kind of making, but it really that doesn't get you there, does it? Like just going out and looking out, because I think people will make that their pantheistic religion, that God is nature. I go outside, that's how, that's my church, that's how I experience God. Yes, you can experience God by going outside and looking up, but that's not, that's the beginning of the story. It's not the holistic story of God. That's not everything because, you know, we experience God's glory in creation, but we experience his grace through his word. And so David makes this beautiful transition and he, he, he almost wraps us into what I call the artist paradox. If somebody was an art history major, I, you, may have, you may have heard this, but you understand the art by knowing the artist. You got to study the artist and know, know the artist, but you can only understand the artist by studying his art. So which is it? Do I study the do I look up or do I look down? Am I studying and finding out who this person is? What are they like? What are their attributes? What have they done in life? What's their, what's their deal? Answer to that question is yes. Or do I study the art? Do I look and see exactly what it is they've created, the colors, and how that they've structured everything? The answer to that question is yes. And David, right here in Psalm 19, resolves the artist paradox. Of what do we do? Do we look at the art to know the artist? Do we look and find out and know the artist to understand the art? The answer to both is yes. It's yes. And he dives right into that with his word. Verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. So he's been looking up and now he's looking down and he's saying, This blows me away. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. God's word leads us to life. Making the wise simple, the precepts of the Lord are giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. When I read this, it always makes me think, when I, you know, when I went to a Christian school growing up, did they present the law wrong? Because it didn't seem like fun, right? But David's like, this is, the, this is a blast. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, much more, like, much more than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. So secondly, we see God's, he's not just showing us, not just drawing us with, with nature, not just drawing us with the idea that the, the heavens are declaring and speaking the glory of God. He's revealing his grace through his word. God gave us his word that we might know him, and our only hope is to know his word. God's grace is in his word. He's saying, there's a story. You've seen me in the heavens, and I want you to know what I've done. There's a, th th this, word, this, this, this whole story is, 
is whispering the name of Jesus. It's leading you to this one place. I want you to know how it is that you're going to be reconnected with the God that created everything. You, you understand that you are tiny and insignificant. But there's a moment where I want you to know that you are rare and precious. How are you going to know? Well, you're going to know that you're rare and precious through his word. You're going to see that and experience God's glory through nature. But you're going to fully know him through his word. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the Bible is the book that reads you. It will tell you your life story and then tell you about the Savior that you've been looking for. I love that. We have to dive in to the word. And we see this. There's got to be a way that we look at the word of God that maybe we've gotten it, it wrong because David says that it's good, it's pure, it's sweet like honey. He says, your word is delicious. And I always think about it. Do I think it's delicious? I mean, is it really that way? I was eating something the other night. I was like, this is, these nachos, delicious. I don't know about this. Like how, what's happening in that process? Like what's, what's happening and, and what David understands and I think what Paul understands is he's saying, you know, we look at creation, we look at everything and we have this, we begin to have this understanding that there's something bigger and that there's something greater is it's, there's a good thing that's found here. That God's word is good. It's a reiteration that we need to stick. It's the, the, our tendency will be to look down. Our tendency will be to go down here and find the things that will give us temporary happiness, will give us pleasure. But God wants us to be in that place of being awestruck and understanding and knowing that we can forget ourselves because he's taking care of everything. He's made a way to lead us to life. And my question is, well, how, how does that even happen? How, how, does, how, do we, how do we get to that place of not, not just experiencing the awe of nature and walking outside? Because I think that's, we, we've talked about that. Go outside. I mean, put the phone away. Like have a day or two where you just shut it off. Irritate all the people that text you all the time. Put it in a drawer, close it, and experience nature. Go outside, swim in the ocean. I don't, whatever it is that you do, just sit in the dirt and grab it. And I mean, just do something outdoors. But how do we get there? And how do we get to that place of reading the word? I, I say this to myself all the time. Like, I, I'm, I'm not good at this. There's too many things, too much stuff, too many distractions. And it, it came to me in this process because I think it's amazing to read the word of God on your own. It seems as though David had a personal, quiet relationship with God, and it was beautiful and wonderful, and you should have your quiet time. But you can't, I, 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 always, I believe this, it's not always the place that you can start, at least for the undisciplined people like me. I can't start with quiet time routine. I have to start where Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. He's saying, meet with people. The church is in place to, to bring you together. And what I mean by this is I just had this conversation with my, with my wife. We, we, the Thursday night's date night, and we go out, and I've talked about this before, like equating your relationship with God with date night, but this is something different. Like, we often are like, let's just stay in. You know, like, well, it's date night, you know, it's Thursday, we got broke, you know, you gotta stay in. And, 
there, there is that, I, just the comfort and the laziness of it's easy to stay here. Oh, the kids will be gone till whatever time and maybe they won't come home and they always do. Um, and it's never right. We always at the end of those nights, gosh, it didn't, it really didn't, late night didn't work out, did it? Um, and then when, when we, one, of, one or the other of us says, let's go, we're going to do something, we just gotta do it. And the other person's like, oh, all right, get in the car, drive there. We usually fight the entire time on the way there for whatever reason. And then we get there and we're across from one another, we're eating dinner and we're having conversations about life, about each other, about our kids, about all the things that you're supposed to do on date night. And then we both will say, whoever drugged the other person there, I'm so glad you made me go. I'm so glad you made me go. I wouldn't have gone without you. And we wonder, we always want to make this jump to, oh, you know, I hear this talk about the word of God. I hear this talk about going out into nature. And, you know, the, the, the times I've experienced nature and enjoyed it the most is usually without somebody else to go, hey, you see that? Like I had this friend that he was into meteor showers and into everything in the sky. And I am, but just not as like, not let's go out at two o'clock in the morning and watch the next meteor shower. So he would call me and say, dude, meteor shower tonight. It's going to be 1.30. I'll pick you up around, you know, you know, one o'clock. And I'm like, awesome. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but never was I, never was I like at the end of it. No, that was terrible. You know, getting my mind blown. I remember watching one. I was in Guana State Park and went down there with a couple of friends and we got down there. First of all, we had a great time together and then it, the meter shower happened. It was one of the most incredible ones. It looked like somebody was like throw, lighting, you know, balls of paper on fire and throwing them in front of your face. I mean, it was, felt that close and we were screaming, Woo! you know, and at the end of it, you're not going to go, yeah, that wasn't worth it. I mean, you just don't. But the process, I just asked somebody that's starting to read the Bible, and I think we're overwhelmed, and I'll, I'll kind of end here. The, I think we often get, get, feel guilty about how do, we, how do we approach God's word? What's your approach? David says he treasures it. He says it's delicious. How do we approach the word of God? And I asked them, like they were just starting to read the Bible and get into it um, again after being away from it, and I just said, can I ask you some questions? And I said, how did you... What happened along the way? Like, what made you want to start doing this? Like, engaging with the Word of God on a regular basis, and you're so excited about it and amped up on it. How did that happen? Well, one, I had this conviction. I mean, it starts there. Like, in these moments like this, like, I feel convicted. I'm just not in the Word of God. I don't see it. It's so delicious. I'm not, it's not me. How do I get there? And it starts there with conviction. And a lot of us, we go all the way from, from there and immediately, like, I'm going to get up every morning at this particular time. And I'm in, some of you can. I'm going to read this amount. This is the commentary I'm going to use. I'm going to have my cup of coffee. I'm going to have my journal. I'm going to do this stuff. But you know, with life, that doesn't always work out that way. It's easy to go, eject button. I got other stuff to do. But the process that God has put in place, because the word of God in many ways, you read Ephesians, it was meant to be read in community. So I said, what was the process for you? It was like, well, I was talking to somebody about they were dealing with the same thing. And I said, well, who was that? You know, was it somebody just, you know, it was a friend. Where did that friend, how did you meet that friend? Where did that friend, I met that friend at church. Okay, how, and how, what happened? How did you become friends to that degree where you could just, you know, talk to him about what you're not doing with God? Oh, we've been friends for a long time. We've served together in the church. We've been in city groups together. We've been together in community for years. And that's the person that I talk to a lot. It's one of my friends. And I said, so what was the, the next process? We just said, well, let's, let's, hold, let's meet together weekly. And we're just gonna read, we're just gonna read the word of God. And this is what they decided to do. We're just gonna read the Bible to each other. 
Like, let's not drop out the commentaries and all that and give each other homework and all that. We like to do that, but you know that's not going to go well. Let's just get together in a circle with the other person that we've invited in. And, they, and then all of a sudden they're like, I know who else we can call. Let's call somebody else. And guess who that person was? A friend from church, somebody that they were engaged with because God puts us together. He says in Hebrews 10, what does he say? Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as sober in the habit of doing. I mean, the practical thing is, and it doesn't happen immediately. You're like, well, I don't have a friend at church. I don't have, I even go to my city group. I don't know. We have these things called fight clubs. And people are always like, how do I get in a fight club? Can you put me in a fight club? We're like, no. You gotta go to city group. You gotta develop relationships. You gotta, you gotta be committed. You gotta say, this is the important thing. If God says that his word is this way, then we, we gotta be in the flow and understand that it's not just about me and Jesus in the morning, in our quiet time, which that's part of it. But the way that it's gonna, you're gonna sustain it is not by yourself. You're just not that good. You're just not. We need somebody to say, let's go watch the meteor shower. And you're like, and they're like, no, seriously, we need to do it. And you do it over and over and over again. And then it ultimately, this is, it so excites me because if you look at the, the end of this passage, in verse 12, it says, but who can discern their own errors? The psalmist is like, I can't fix my sins. I can't forgive my own faults. Who's this gonna be? Who's this gonna be? Of course, it's leading to Jesus. Look at this in John 1, and I love this. This is like a collision of creation and the word of God all coming together in Jesus. It says in the beginning was what? The word. What's the word? Jesus. What is grace in essence? It's Jesus who came who died, took all of your sin to reconnect you with God. It says, he was the word. Jesus, the word, was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word, and Jesus was with God in the beginning. He was the active force in breathing out the stars. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light for all mankind that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We need Jesus. We are desperate for Jesus. And from creation to his word, he is gracefully leading us to himself. We've seen his glory. He says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the glory of God. He's the one that, that makes the wind and the waves, calms the wind and the waves. Jesus raises the dead. And Jesus is the glory of God as he sits on the cross. Jesus is the glory of God as he bleeds out on Mount Calvary. Jesus is the glory of God as he's placed in the tomb. And Jesus is the glory of God but by the power of God. He is raised from the dead. And he is the word out of the grave out of the grave, transforming our life and our heart. And if you're wondering today, if you've been a follower of Jesus for 30 years, or you're somebody that, yeah, this is all new to you. Jesus is calling. You are here not by accident. This gathering of the saints is here to spur us all on to get our eyes focused on what matters, to get our eyes off of the ground, off of the things that give us joy, temporary pleasure, and, and to put us in that place of being overwhelmed and awestruck by the actual creator of the universe. And he's here, and his name is Jesus, and he's calling you. He's pursuing you. He's running after you. He's given up everything 
to come find you. That's what's found in the beauty of God's word and through his spirit that's moving in this room right now. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love how you move us. We love that your word is sweeter than honey. And God, open our eyes and our mind through everything that we see, everything that we experience, that it's you drawing us.